to the book of Genesis, we return this morning to the 47th chapter where we find Jacob and his sons have now come to Egypt and the Lord's providence uh, and to the land where their son and brother Joseph is now reigning under Pharaoh. Here in Egypt, the people later to be known by their father's name, Israel, here they were saved from severe famine in more ways than one separated both from the wicked back home in Canaan and given a land in the midst of, but not necessarily intermingled with, the Egyptians, Israel's descendants now will grow not only physically into a great nation, but also spiritually into a distinct nation of God's people. Genesis chapter 47 Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, your word is powerful and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray that it will do its perfect work in us this morning, forming and and, uh, shaping us to better serve you and be more faithful servants of your kingdom. And remembering also, Father, the grace that you pour out upon us there to be what you have told us we are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 47, we begin at verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land. Sojourn indeed. I can't help but wonder if uh, maybe the hearts of the people chuckled in the wilderness when first they heard these words read, uh, Moses having penned them uh, in the wilderness. This family comes to sojourn in the land, a sojourn, as it turns out, that will last over 400 years and culminate in abject slavery and then in amazing deliverance. Verse 4, they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. This may seem to us a menial thing to be placed in charge of Pharaoh's livestock, but for this family it meant that they would become officers of the crown. And so they would enjoy legal protection not usually accorded to aliens in the land of Egypt. In fact, not only would there be actual legal protection, but they would go on to possess uh, land, as we shall see. For now, watch this then, what Derek Kidner calls a masterly little portrait of Jacob with Pharaoh, beginning in verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? 
And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided for his, provided his brother, his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And since we live in equine country here in uh, Kentucky, it may interest you to know that this is the uh, first mention of horse of the horse in Scripture. The horse is said to have arrived in the Middle East in the beginning of the second century, uh, second millennium, rather, second millennium B.C., and in Egypt by the 17th century. You may also remember that in Solomon's day, Egypt was an important source of horses uh, for the king. Verse 18, And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests did he not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, 
and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day. Of course, this is Moses writing it at the time of the exile or soon thereafter. It stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. A couple of years ago, I was out to eat at a restaurant with another Christian, a local restaurant. We met there for lunch. Not a Christian from this church, by the way. We had a good chat. We prayed together, and the service was good. The waitress did a fine job of taking care of all that we needed. And then when the time came to leave, he offered to leave the tip. Now, as I say, the waitress had done a good job, but the tip that he left for her was downright embarrassing. She had seen us praying She had heard us talking about the Lord and all the rest. And then this, I think it was a lousy buck he tossed on the table. If memory serves me, after we left the restaurant and parted ways at the front door, I went back and tried to beef that tip up at least to a respectful level. Now you may think it's silly that I remember that that day. What's the difference, really? What's the big deal? I probably only threw down another buck and some change. What's the big deal? Just this. About 4,000 years ago, God met with one one of the most important relatives I have. And in that encounter, there was a commandment wrapped up in a statement. It went like this. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That relative was my father, Abraham. God blessed him, and God has blessed me, and he has blessed you. Why? Well, of course, you, you children have it for his own Glory, Yes, and you're exactly right from your children's catechism. But he's also blessed us for another reason. He's blessed us so that we will be a blessing. A blessing to all the families of the earth. Jacob was a bit closer to that uh, relative, of course, just two generations from Abraham and Uh, Though Jacob, as we learn, was in many respects a scoundrel, in many ways in his life as a son and as a husband and as a brother and as a father, a failure, 
Yet we do also find those shining moments in Jacob's life. This is one of them. It's really a fascinating episode if you, if you think through the dynamics here. Jacob comes into Pharaoh's presence, but not as an abject, frightened uh, subject. The pomp and the glory of the most powerful ruler in the world. This doesn't overly impress Jacob in his old age. In fact, to judge from the passage, Jacob doesn't even wait for Pharaoh's cue. Before Pharaoh says a word, Jacob blesses him. And before this meeting is over, Jacob will have blessed Pharaoh again. Now, to bless a person meant more than just a mere greeting or some well wishes. I think Robert Candlish probably captures it as well as any. Lifting up his hands at the full height of his stature, um, without one preliminary word of salutation or gesture of compliment to the king, the old man pours out his soul in prayer, asking God's blessing on the royal head. And in God's name, pronouncing the customary blessing of Abraham's house and seed. In other words, Jacob here, Jacob is a channel of God's blessing to Pharaoh. He's a channel of God's blessing. But Jacob is not the only one who is doing the blessing in this this chapter. Go on and find Joseph also blessing Pharaoh. Indeed, blessing Pharaoh's entire nation. How? Well, not by stretching out his hands and proclaiming it so much as blessing them all in the daily round of life. And before I go on, let me tell you this. There are plenty of people, there are Bible scholars who would disagree vehemently with what I've just said. They do not find Jacob blessing Egypt here. In fact, quite the opposite. They think to find him oppressing the people. One of the commentaries on my shelf entitles this section simply Tyranny and goes on to describe what we have read as Joseph's, quote, achievement in reducing the whole citizenry of Egypt to penury and serfdom, taking advantage of the famine and like the cruelest bailiff of medieval feudalism, squeezing the lifeblood from an exploited and cringing peasantry. That, I fear, is a vastly mistaken interpretation of the events and is not at all true to the text or what the text has to say about itself. In fact, I would go on to say that the that, that interpretation has more to do with the relatively recent ugliness of slavery as it existed in our own nation, chattel slavery, in which human beings were bought and sold and treated like personal property. We read about any form of slavery today, and our view is immediately colored by memories of the African slave trade. But the people of Egypt did not view these events as negative. In fact, the narrator is careful, so careful to include this comment in verse 25, lest we should miss it. And they said, 
You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants of Pharaoh. You see, though it may look like, look to us today as though Joseph exploited the destitute who were forced to sell or mortgage their animals and land and their own freedom in order to stay alive, while he, the cunning agent, makes the most of their plight to enrich the crown. As a matter of fact, what Joseph has done here is to save their skins for which they are deeply grateful and happy. Happily, they enter into servitude to Pharaoh. Everyone recognized that slavery was an acceptable way of bailing out the destitute and that under a benevolent master, it could be quite a comfortable way of living. Anyway, it certainly was better than starving to death. Remember that Joseph himself had been a slave in Potiphar's house and had found it a living quite satisfactory in many respects. Indeed, even the Bible itself, God's law, circumscribed slavery and even allowed for temporary slaves to choose to become permanent slaves instead of gaining their freedom like they could every seventh year. Why in the world would they do such a thing? Because ancient slavery, at least when it was carried out in accordance with God's word, with biblical law, ancient slavery was more like tenured employment. The free man was like someone who was self-employed. And as in the employer-employee relationship Today, he, the slaveholder, faced much greater risks while the slaves, or or servants if you like, enjoyed the protection and the provision of the former. It's been described as the ancient Near East form of welfare with a must-work-for-benefits proviso. So what was happening here under the wise leadership of Joseph was the saving of a multitude of lives from starvation, benefiting the people by making their provision Pharaoh's concern. What is more, they were still left with the right to make a living from the land. They had a tax burden, of course, about 20%, which uh, for most, uh, many or maybe most Americans, would be a, a happy thing. A 20% tax uh, rate, a rate for which many Americans would be glad to exchange their own. Of course, we can easily imagine that not everyone was thrilled with Joseph, Joseph's actions here, but the Bible's own verdict is that though through the eyes of the Egyptian people themselves, what Joseph did was nothing less than life-saving, and that by the means most acceptable in that time and place. Now, what's the point? Here it is. Here are God's chosen people, His covenant people in a land of strangers to God's covenant. Doing what? Blessing them. Blessing them. 
Whether it's the pronouncement of blessing on their head and prayer for them, as in the case of Jacob and Pharaoh, or providing wonderfully and wisely for an entire nation, as in the case of Joseph for Egypt, these are God's people living up to God's mandate that their father Abraham received to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. In everything from personal interaction to international diplomacy, God's people were blessing the families of the earth. And it's still the same today. Christians all over the world are blessing the families of the earth every day. How? By establishing hospitals. By starting schools. By clothing the naked. By feeding the hungry. Where genuine Christians are found in government, they seek justice for the oppressed and they seek to establish laws that defend the poor and the weak. And Christians have even more wonderful blessings to bring to the families of all the earth. We have the gospel. We have the gospel. It is we who have this treasure of the gospel in us, who have the knowledge of the one true and triune God, which is salvation itself. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are the fragrance of life, from life to life, to those who will receive our testimony, the truth. What greater blessing can be given than that? What greater blessing can they live receive in that no man's land between Nigeria and the Cameroon than that? The gospel. The truth. What greater blessing can they receive in Owensboro, Kentucky? Or in Evansville, Indiana than that? The gospel. How could we bless another in a, in a way that could surpass eternal life as a free gift? And even those who will not receive our message, who will not bow the knee to Christ even they still enjoy blessings untold simply because of the influence of the gospel and of Christians in the world. Imagine our nation today if it were not for the early influences of the gospel in the thinking of so many of the founders of our nation. Imagine the chaos were it not for the influence of the gospel today. So much of the affluence and the blessing that now washes over our rich nation is simply the overflow of the blessings of God, of His goodness upon generations of His children. So it must be with you, dear flock, with every one of you, when you are at work, the blessings that company enjoys should come from the overflow of God's blessings upon you who obey Him. That your company or the company for which you work is a more honest place, a fairer place, 
a more just place must be because of your presence in that workplace, in that company, and the presence of others with you from Abraham's seed. Christians, your presence in the neighborhood should make your neighborhood a safer and more wonderful and happier place to live because you bless the families around you. And yes, the waitress at the restaurant should never finish her shift on a day when you were there and say to herself, there was not one single decent customer today, not one. You, child of Abraham, you are in the spiritual line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like your forefathers, and you are to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. What about the ones who curse me? What about the ones who hate me, who revile me, who speak all sorts of evil against me? Them too. Them too. I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, says your Lord. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. I mentioned Samuel Rutherford's correspondence to you last week. One of them, Marion McNaught in particular. This week I read another one in Faith Cook's collection about uh, John Gordon. He was a nasty old laird, a uh, landowner who intimidated his farming tenants who grazed their cattle and eked out a meager income from his land. Rutherford fearlessly denunciated his unethical conduct towards his tenants from virtually the beginning of his ministry in Anwath. Tradition has it that Gordon even drove Rutherford right out of his castle and uh, refused even to attend his ministry to come to church for some time. But Rutherford, even after he was exiled from that place, continued to write in some of his best letters to Gordon, to John Gordon, seeking Gordon's blessing under God by seeking to turn Gordon's affections from earthly gain to the true source of good. I dare say, Rutherford wrote, that angels' pens Angels, tongues, nay, as many worlds of angels as there are drops of water in all the seas and fountains and rivers of the earth cannot paint him to you. Oh, what a sight to be up in heaven and to see and smell and touch and kiss that fair field flower that ever green tree of life. His bare shadow were enough for me. 
Rutherford continues his appeals and his warnings until we find evidence that old John Gordon bowed his proud heart, becoming like a little child, and entered the kingdom of heaven. Stoop, stoop, Rutherford had begged. It is a low entry to go in at heaven's gate. But in a later letter, Rutherford addressed his elderly friend this way. Honorable and dearest in the Lord, your, your letter hath refreshed my soul. My joy is fulfilled if Christ and ye be fast together. You are my joy and my crown. Perhaps an even better illustration of this principle must be the one I conveyed to you, I think, several years ago from Professor Jeffrey Wainwright's book, Doxology. A Turkish officer raided and looted an Armenian home. He killed the aged parents and gave the daughters to the soldiers, keeping the eldest daughter for himself. Sometime later, she escaped and trained as a nurse, and as a time passed, she found herself nursing a ward of Turkish soldiers. One night, by the light of a lantern, she saw the face of one officer. He was so gravely ill that without exceptional nursing, he would die. He was, uh, the days passed, and, and he recovered One day the doctor stood by the bed and with her and said to him, But for her devotion to you, you would be dead. He looked at her and he said, We've met before, haven't we? Yes, she said, we have met before. Why didn't you... Kill me, he asked. She replied, I am a follower of him who said, Love your enemies. Which is just another way of saying, I am a follower of him who has made me a blessing to others, even you. Now you say the same, Christian. You say the same and join the ranks of Jacob and Joseph, of Rutherford and that Armenian nurse and a multitude like them spread today over the face of all the earth whose calling is exactly the same as yours. Wherever you go, whatever you are doing, let God's voice ring in the ears of your heart. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. Amen.